Well, this is the the last night of the retreat, and tomorrow we return to that loud, noisy, busy, frantic, crazy world out there. And question question that often comes up, often shows for people around this time on a retreat, maybe even sooner, maybe even this morning, or maybe even yesterday, is um, how do I take this home with me? How can I take this practice home with me? What can I take home? And and often what it ends up what it ends up as is um, as is is <laughs> I've had some moments of wonderful, peaceful, calm, quiet experience. How can I keep that? How can I take that home with me? Or I've had this this amazing insight, this just this really oh, it just felt so free after this insight. How can I remember this? So I'd like to um just speak a little bit about um about taking the practice, what to how to how to take it. And I'd like to give it a talk about it from the perspective of um, what I think is the, the Buddha's offering of how to how to take how to sustain the practice, how to sustain the the quest, the seeking, the curiosity, the investigation, and the mindfulness. The Buddha was was very practical. He he was very aware of the the difficulty and the struggle for householders to follow this this path. And in his teachings he presents a path. And he presents a path that's very applicable for both the monks and the nuns, and for lay people. And it's very practical because it covers every aspect of life. It covers everything. This morning I spoke about mindfulness of body and, <clears throat> and how the Buddha spoke of being mindful in every moment, no matter what we're doing. And of course, this is, this is one way of, of bringing the, the practice into daily life to really, really sustain as much as we can the mindfulness and, and, and bring, bring, bring real interest and intention and effort to sustaining that mindfulness. But there's more to it than just mindfulness. So I spoke a couple of nights ago, I, I, I referred to these four statements that the Buddha made to sum up his, his insights and, and his, his practice, his, his understandings. And these four statements, as most of you are aware, are referred to as the Four Noble Truths. And as I said, the first one is simply there is dukkha. And if we just just remember that in our lives and just go through our lives and just keep reminding ourselves, ah, yes, there is dukkha. 
And then the second statement, there is a cause for dukkha. So when we recognize that there's dukkha, to remember this statement, ah, yes, there is a cause. And then hopefully that will start the, the investigation. Start, oh, well, what's the cause? What's the cause? And, and as, as I spoke about, generally we'll start pointing out there. And we'll find the cause out there. Well, it's because that happened or because um, he said that or because whatever. The sun didn't shine. (laughs) The stars were in the wrong place. (laughs) Whatever we can find out there for the cause. But hopefully we we can see through that and remind ourselves, wait a minute, what's in here? What's in here in mind, heart, body? And... And, and just remembering these two statements, there is dukkha and there's a cause, can help us to, to keep, keep looking, keep feeling, keep open. <clears throat> and then the third statement, there is an end to dukkha. And I think this is maybe the most important <laughs> to remember. And often the most difficult. Often we get so caught up in the dukkha, and when we're caught in it, it's very hard to see it's very hard to remember that there is an end. There is an end. And, and that end, the, the, the end of dukkha, is, as some of us have had glimpses on this retreat, we've had tastes on this retreat, that the ending of dukkha, the, the awakening, can happen in any moment. In any moment. There's a, a discourse where, where the Buddha is asked, is awakening gradual or sudden? Common question, I think. Because we get both opinions. We get some teachers saying, well, it's gradual and you have to do this and this and you have to follow this path and, and do these practices. And then you get other teachers saying, no, 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 it's just now. Just wake up right now. And when the Buddha was asked, his, his response was, there was a king who had two palaces, and he had to get from one palace to the other as quickly as he could. There was some state emergency happening, I forget, or there was a war about to start or something. He had to get from one palace to the other quickly. And so he um, had his chariot, he called his charioteer, and the charioteer tied up a bunch of horses to the chariot, and they got in, and off they went, galloping away. And, um, and after a bit, the horses got tired out. They stopped, and there was another set of horses waiting. So they tied up these new, fresh horses. Off they went, <laughs> as fast as they could. And again, the horses got tired, new set of horses, changed horses, maybe, maybe had a, a drink of water or something, <laughs> and off they went again. And so, stage by stage, as it says in the, in, the, in, the, in the discourse, stage by stage, they arrived at the door of the palace. And then they stopped, they got down from the chariot, and opened the door, and just in an instant, first they're not in the palace, and then they're in the palace. So they arrive just in an instant. But it's taken the gradual. So, so the Buddha's not taking a stand. It is gradual. It is sudden. It's not gradual. It's not sudden. 
It's it, it's it's both. It's both. And um, and we use we use we use the practices. We use the forms um, from the perspective of of gradual of gradual. But in using the forms, we've we've many of us have experienced on this retreat that in the midst of using a form, at any time something just drops in or drops out. <laughs> something drops, and there's this releasing. The releasing happens. And sometimes it happens even when we're not doing the form. We can be in here sitting and sitting and sitting and doing qigong and being mindful and being in the body, and it's like nothing's happening except maybe I'm getting a little sore or maybe I'm getting bored. And then I step outside and I look up the tree and, oh, there's a releasing. And it just happens in an instant. And, and awakening is like that. It can happen in any moment. And, and it seems to me that somehow the practices, the practices don't directly bring the awakening, but they create conditions. They create conditions and they, and they allow us to see things in a, in a, in a different way. They allow us to see that to, to 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 kind of get that the way that we generally perceive things and the way that we generally understand things isn't necessarily the way they are. In fact, most of the time, it's not the way things actually are. And as we get that and start to see how things actually are, this sets up the conditions for a sudden releasing. So is it gradual? Is it sudden? <laughs> so we have the practices and, and the forms, and, and tomorrow we'll we'll talk. Brad and I will talk about uh, how to bring the forms into our daily lives and and integrate. And this evening, I'd like to talk more about the fourth statement. So there's there is dukkha. There's cause of dukkha. There's ending of dukkha. And then, curiously, after the Buddha gives these three, and after he proclaims the ending of dukkha, then he says, there's a path. There's a path. And he, and he proclaims the path, and the path that he proclaims is referred to as the Eightfold Noble Path, because it's got eight parts to it. And, um, and it's curious to me that, that it comes last, because it, it seemed it always used to seem to me that the path should come first <laughs> and and i think i think here the buddha the buddha is is trying to show a little bit that it's not that we have a path and we go along the path and the path at some point is going to okay it's going to the awakening can happen anywhere and i think also what he's what he's pointing to is that the the entry into the path the entry into the path the actual entry into the path begins when we already have some understanding i think i spoke about this at some point during the week we already have some understanding 
And because of that understanding, we enter into the path. And, and so, it's, so the path comes last after the four, and yet the path contributes to conditions that support the awakening. And so, so the four statements actually end up becoming a cycle. It's not bang, 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 done with. And so, the, so this path, so I'd like to speak a little bit about the path because I think in, in leaving the, the support of the retreat center and the, uh, the forms and all the supports that we have and being out in the quiet countryside, um, all of this, I think a familiarity with this path, with the Eightfold Path, and, and an exploration of how it can apply, how it does apply in our daily lives can be helpful. And, and it might be helpful when you, when you leave the retreat to, um, to go home and uh, if you can remember or if you can't remember, you can look it up somewhere and actually write down the Eightfold Path and put it up somewhere where you can check it out from time to time and just have it as a reminder. So the Eightfold Path, <coughs> the Eightfold Path begins, it has eight parts, and, and traditionally it's divided into three sections. And the first section, interestingly enough, just like path comes at the end and you would expect it to be at the beginning, the first part, the first section of the Eightfold Path is what you would expect to be at the end, and it's wisdom. So again, he's pointing out that the path begins with wisdom. Begins with wisdom. And wisdom on the Eightfold Path has two aspects to it. So two of the eight are to do with the wisdom. And the first is is translated as right view or right understanding. Right view or right understanding. And and right here, uh, I... I prefer to, I, I understand it as meaning skillful or wise, appropriate. And so, so right understanding is the beginning of the path. And, and as I, as I, as I said when, as I said one time, one time during this retreat, that the, the very fact that you're here to me, is an indication that there is some right understanding. Just the fact that we enter into the path, there's some right understanding. And what does right understanding mean? It's generally considered to be, and in most cases, when, when the Buddha spoke of right understanding, he, he, tra- he, he described it as an understanding of the Four Noble Truths an understanding that, yes, there is dukkha, and more than an intellectual understanding, but something in your experience, something in your own experience that says, there is dukkha. Yes, I see there's a cause. I see that the cause isn't out there. And yes, I've had some taste of at least the possibility of ending it. If I, if I didn't have that 
sense of some possibility, why would I sit here and watch my breathing day in and day out? <laughs> so the, so there, there's some degree of understanding and some degree of experiential understanding of the Four Noble Truths to, in order for us to enter into the path. And so this is the usual description of right understanding. It's this understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And as we, as we develop the practice, as understanding develops, as insight comes, the understanding of the Four Noble Truths gets more and more subtle. I often say it gets deeper. Somehow I'm, I'm not happy with that phrase, it gets deeper. But the understanding gets, gets more subtle, more refined, and more awakening, more liberating. There's one discourse that the Buddha gave which is titled Right Understanding or Right View. The title of it is Right View, and it's, it's the main discourse that he gave on Right View. And in this discourse, he lists 16 different perspectives on right view, 16 different ways of describing or defining what he means by right view. And in this particular discourse, uh, the Four Noble Truths is, is the third. It's the third, the third one. And... Right now I forget what the second one is. But the first one, the first one, interestingly enough, is... Um, <laughs> I forget the first one too. <laughs> is, the first one is understanding the wholesome and the unwholesome. Understanding the wholesome and the unwholesome. And then he asks the question, which he does, you know, he... He asks a question and then he goes ahead and answers it himself. Uh, He asks the question, what is wholesome and what is unwholesome? And what he points to as wholesome is the five precepts that were listed in the opening talk on Friday evening. Seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Long time ago, Friday evening. So the, the five precepts. So, so he points directly to, to the ethical life. He points to the ethical life as being the start, the foundation of the path. Very interesting. And he does this because he recognizes, he recognizes that that people who live a very unethical life generally find it very difficult to be still and find it very difficult to follow the other precepts and find it very difficult to, to, to really open to the inner life. And so, so he starts with the five precepts, and, and I'm, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to this. So this is the first: is the right view, starting with the precepts, and then the four noble truths. 
The second of the eight is right intention. So we've got the ethical foundation, but in a way the ethical foundation requires, as a foundation, intention. What's, what's your intention in life? And I think this is a very important question for us to ask ourselves, certainly on coming in a, onto a retreat. It can be really useful at the start of a retreat just to ask this question, what's my intention in being here? Why am I here? And, and having, having a clear intention, having a clear sense of why, or at least being clear that I don't really know why. And sometimes that's the best intention, the best clarity. I'm here just to see. Having that helps to ground. It helps to ground us so that we don't go all over the place trying to figure out, spend the whole retreat figuring out, what am I doing here? Why am I here? What's, what's going on? Why am I doing this? To have an intention grounds us. So right intention is very important on the retreat. And, and in our daily lives, too, I think it's, it's important. It's, it's at least useful to have an intention and to be clear what our intention is. And, and intention impacts in so many ways. It impacts on our actions. It impacts on our speech, on how we relate to people, how we relate to ourselves. The Buddha's description or definition of right intention had three parts to it. Are you getting that the Buddha liked <laughs> lists and divisions and uh, categories <laughs> makes it easy to remember them makes it easy to remember so the right intention has has three parts the first part of right intention is the intention for renunciation the intention for renunciation and renunciation it, it, it kind of has two aspects to it <laughs> <laughs> and the first, the first aspect is, is the aspect of it that, that most of us here in the West like <laughs> better, <laughs> prefer, and that's the aspect of renouncing in the sense of not clinging, in the sense of, well, it's okay to have these things as long as I don't cling to them, as long as I'm not attached to them. And, and I, often, I often say that the, the test of attachment is how are you when you lose something that you like? And so, so we like this idea that we can have whatever we want as long as we're not attached to it. <laughs> the second aspect, and I, th- and I think the more, the more important one, is, 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 is an aspect of renunciation. Of renunciation, and and one of the implications of this, and a, a huge implication of this, is how we live in this world. How we live in this world, and the impact of the way we're living in this world on the world and on others. Renunciation has a quality of living simply, of living lightly. 
leaving a light footprint on the earth, leaving a light footprint on others. It's very much it's very much a part of how we treat ourselves, how we treat each other, and how we treat the world. And and right intention and renunciation are calling us, are call, yeah, calling us to examine the effect of our actions. And we all know that that the world is in a sad state right now and is getting in more and more of a sad state because of all the acquisition and accumulating and the material goods and just so much stuff and polluting the earth, polluting the world. It wasn't a problem. It wasn't such a problem at the time of the Buddha because there weren't so many things, first of all, and there weren't nearly so many people. And so things could be discarded, and most of the things that they did have were biodegradable anyways. So the earth and the water didn't get polluted like it does now. This renunciation, living simply, being discriminating in what do we need? What do we need? It's... um. I find it um, very rewarding. I, I take each year. I take a group on pilgrimage to India to the Buddhist sites in India, and people are amazed consistently to find out how little they can actually live with. And 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 I would encourage you to take this renunciation to examine your life and and to really look and see of everything I have, what do I actually need? What do I actually need to live? The The Buddha outlined four requisites for life. Food, we need food. We need clothing. We need shelter, especially when you live in Canada. (laughs) <laughs> and we need health care, medicine. And these are the four categories of things that we need. And then looking in each of these four categories, what kind of food, what quality of food, what's the impact of my food on the environment? How many sweaters do I need? How many jackets do I need? How many pairs of shoes do I need? How big a home do I need? What temperature do I need to keep my home at? So, People say, uh, you, you read in um, different books and magazines about travel, they say when you're traveling, take a picture of your home to show people where you live. To be honest, going to India, I would be thoroughly embarrassed (laughs) to show anyone the home that I live in, the home that two people live in, the home that we have two people living in. In India, a home that size would probably have, I know, there's one, there's um, one, one family that we, 
that we go to visit in in one of the one of the villages and they have 18 people living in two rooms sometimes it's embarrassing just to think about what we have here shelter and and medicine and healthcare and of course we need that but but i, I think there there is there is there is debate going and i think it's i think it's important discussion about to what extremes do we go to try to keep people alive and to try to keep us from aging and all the the extent that we go to that so many of us go to or so many people go to 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 not age to try and stop aging to try and stop illness so really examining renunciation from these perspectives and then the other two aspects of right intention are the intention for non-harming and non-ill will non-harming is a big one to examine our lives and see where are we causing harm what would it mean to really have an intention for non-harming and again it it would it, it impacts on our actions it impacts on our speech impacts on the way we relate to people and to the environment again non-harming and non-ill will non-ill will and this is where the metta practice comes in cultivating the wish for the well-being of others cultivating a, a a kind and friendly heart so these these three aspects of intention and really really looking at these in our lives this is how we bring the practice into our daily lives this is how we make the practice practical for us practice should be practical shouldn't it so right view right intention this is the wisdom aspect the the next the next aspect is generally referred to as the ethical aspect and it has three parts to it and the three parts pretty much cover the the precepts so it's right speech right action and <clears throat> importantly for lay people particularly right livelihood speech action and livelihood and and they're in the path as ethical aspects and so again it's it's calling on us to examine our speech to bring awareness to bring mindfulness to our speech So one of the precepts is undertake a training, a practice to refrain from speaking untruthfully, to refrain from telling lies. So this is an important aspect of right speech, not telling lies. And and we can hear hear that and read that and think, "Oh, well, okay, that's that's no big deal, you know." 
I can, um, I can, I can mostly manage without telling lies. But lies come to different degrees. You know, sometimes we stretch the truth and we find ways of excusing ourselves. No, it's not a lie. And, and manipulate the truth. You see this, um, you see this with politicians all the time. <laughs> we see it with statistics. Just, just one example, and it ties in with the uh, the well-being, and it ties in with the um, the requisites, the the healthcare and the medicine. Um, a number of years ago, there was a a new anti-malarial drug introduced, and we were in India, and there was a fellow who was taking this anti-malarial tablet, and had a very severe psychotic breakdown. And we um, had, through his insurance company, we had a doctor flown in from Delhi. We were in Bodh Gaya, overnight train ride away. He flew in, and the first thing he said was, is he taking anti-malarial? And we had rummaged through the fellow's bag, and we had seen the package, and we said, yes. And we told him what he's taking, and he said, that's it. It's because of that. And they stopped the anti-malarials, took him off, and put him in the hospital for a while, and then released him. When I got back to Canada, um, I, I managed to get the initial research studies of this drug. And I was just horrified to read the way that the research studies had been manipulated to make this drug appear safe. They found, found all kinds of ways in, in all the studies, they found all kinds of ways of eliminating the people who had psychotic episodes while they were taking it. They'd say, well, they had had a previous episode, or, oh, they were taking this other drug, so maybe it was caused by that, or, oh, this happened in their life, somebody died, so we have to dismiss that. And they eliminated everyone who had the psychotic episodes. And then they were able to present to the governments and say, look, it's safe. Right speech. Right speech. So really giving attention to how we stretch the truth, how we manipulate, how we, how we leave out things to make them appear different than they are. Really giving attention to that in our lives and bringing awareness to how that affects others. Right action. Right action covers the other precepts, the other four. First one, not killing. So we can say, oh, that's easy. You know, I, I, can, I can live without killing. And then we see, okay, are we killing mosquitoes? Are we swatting mosquitoes when they buzz around us? What are we killing as we walk on the ground? The 
the intention becomes very important. The intention becomes very important. Walking on the ground, I don't know if it's possible to walk on the ground. There's so many microscopic beings that just can't see and no no idea at all that they're there. Don't know how we could ever walk on the ground without without at least the risk of stepping on something. So intention becomes very important. It's not intentionally. And again, it can seem quite easy. It's quite clear. No, I won't kill. But but I, I think I think of um, of phrases that we have like. Um, Words kill. You know, and we, and we can, in a way, kill people with our words. The way we speak to someone can cause such damage and such harm. Killing with kindness. Have you heard that phrase? Killing with kindness. You know... Too much of a good thing, or or kindness when it's not really wanted or needed, forcing ourselves on others, overwhelming someone, smothering someone with kindness. So it's really about. It's not just about physically killing. It's it's about how we're relating to others. And ourselves too. You know, we kill ourselves too, the way we, Brad talked about the inner critic. We criticize ourselves to death, and judge ourselves, and beat up on ourselves. So bringing awareness to all these ways that we, that we really interfere with life and cause damage to life, cause harm to life. Not killing, not stealing, not taking what isn't given, not taking what isn't given. Well, you know, that's, that's pretty easy too. So it seems. But what, what, what do we take? What do we take from this world that isn't really ours to take? What are we taking in the form of the resources, in, form of, in the form of the environment, in the form of um, livelihoods? Um, just so many ways that we, we take that which isn't really ours to take. And bringing awareness to this. This is, again, this is an important part of the ethical life. How are we relating to the world? How are we relating to things that don't belong to us? Where are we? Not killing, not stealing, not lying. The third, the third, the third precept is not, it's generally translated as not engaging in sexual misconduct. And the, the, the original, way, way, way back, the original translation was not engaging in sensual misconduct. 
And over the years, it's been narrowed down and kind of refined down to sexual. But originally, it was sensual. It was referring to misconduct through all the senses. How are we overstimulating our senses? How are we abusing ourselves through the sense doors? It could be through eating, it could be through watching way too much television, it could be through um, all kinds of ways. <laughs> you know, the ways, the ways that we just overstimulate us and, and, we, and see the effect on that. You, we felt the effect when we came into the retreat. The first few days, the exhaustion from having been overstimulated. And then the way that we've, we've been stimulated to the point where we, even though we're exhausted from it, we keep looking for it. We keep looking out there for more stimulation. And when there isn't the stimulation, oh, it's so boring. Oh, oh I need something. Oh. Why don't they have coffee here? <laughs> yeah, stimulating the senses to the point of overstimulation and burning ourselves out through it. And of course, it does have the, the sexual misconduct aspect of it, which, which can be seen in, in a little bit of a broader way, just in the sense of exploiting, taking advantage of, um, acting not out of kindness and generosity, but acting out of self-interest, out of greed, out of um, out of lust. And again, that applies in sexual, but not just in sexual matters. And then um, not using not using substances that cause carelessness. Not using substances that cause carelessness. And traditionally that refers to, actually in the, in the literal wording of the, of, of the precept, it refers specifically to alcohol. But traditionally it also refers to drugs, to the use of drugs. And I would say that it goes even beyond that. Substances that cause carelessness. And again, it, it can be things like overstimulation. We get overstimulated to the point where just, we just aren't acting clearly. Just not acting with wisdom. Overstimulated in, in so many ways. So again, giving attention, giving attention to this, giving attention to our our actions, giving attention to the to the ethical life in how we act. And livelihood. Livelihood, looking at livelihood from an ethical standpoint. So there are certain there are certain occupations that the Buddha just came right out and said, these are wrong livelihood. They're not conducive to wholesomeness. <laughs> They're not conducive to following the path. 
and and some of the ones that he he listed um, are dealing in weapons, dealing in poisons and drugs, dealing in dealing in um, weapons, poisons and drugs, people, dealing in people, slavery, prostitution, um, dealing in being a butcher because of the, the killing that's involved in it. So he said these these are wrong livelihood. And he's not so clear on what's right livelihood. He doesn't he doesn't spell out and define what right livelihood is. But he gives he gives guidelines and again right livelihood is what's wholesome. What's what's leading towards less suffering what's in line with the intentions for non-harming and non-ill will so some 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 livelihoods are very clearly wrong livelihood because of the harm that they cause some are pretty clearly right livelihood and most jobs would fall somewhere in between and and the Buddha kind of leaves it for each of us to examine for ourselves. And sometimes we find ourselves in jobs and we start to question the ethics of it. We start to question, is this right livelihood? And sometimes the answer becomes clear, no. I was just, just reading an article about... Um, uh, a newspaper journalist who had been a, a stock trader, a trader on the stock market. And, and after years of doing this and earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, he just couldn't take any more the deceit and the manipulation and, and the competition and how it was destroying people, both emotionally and financially. And he quit and became a journalist at a much, much, much lower pay. And he said that he got, he got one email from a colleague saying, good for you for being so brave. Everyone else who contacted him said, how can you take so much less money? But in his heart, he knew he had to because of the ethics. Sometimes, sometimes there are, there are occupations where there can be aspects of it that are unethical, and and I think sometimes it can be possible to to examine our intention in the livelihood, and by changing our intention, by bringing right intention in, we can perhaps bring an ethical aspect to the job to the livelihood. So a question might be, okay, I'm doing my job, I'm not really satisfied with it. Um, I look around and I see the job seems okay, but I'm, I'm not really satisfied. There's just something about it. And maybe it could be asking a question like, why am I doing this job? And if the answer is, well, I'm doing it for the money, 
maybe that's not good enough. But if I can, if I can examine the job and look within myself and say, well, I'm doing it because it's helpful for someone, and make that the motivation, make that the intention rather than the money. The switch in the switch in intention can bring an ethic into the livelihood. So in this in this gray area, it's for each of us to really look for ourselves and to really to really honor what's right, what's ethical, what's skillful, what's wise, what's in in line with, in harmony with the intentions for renunciation, non-harming, and non-ill will. So the ethics very much follows on the intention. It is supported by the intention. And finally, we come to the last, the last three. And the last three are the practice the meditation practice aspects. And the, the three are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And so what we've been practicing here, what we've been developing here, what we've been exploring here on the retreat is just one section of the path. And I think it's really important for us to look at the path and see that the path is this whole package. It's the whole package. And when we start to look closely, we see that each part of the path, each one of these eight, overlaps with and impacts on the other seven. And we, we see how the, the, the wisdom part starts with starts with the ethics. So it flows into the second part, which is the ethics. And the, and the ethical part becomes a foundation for the practice part. And the practice part becomes a foundation for the wisdom. So it becomes more of a, a cycle than a, a linear thing. And it's, it's a cycle with all the pieces interacting with each other. So it's a package. And so in looking at any one, it's helpful to look at how that relates to the others and how it impacts on the others. And just this in itself can be a full-time practice for our daily lives, for how we live in the world. So to use this, to use this path that the Buddha has outlined and, 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 to, and perhaps to think of it not so much, although it it definitely functions as a gradual path. But perhaps to think of it not as much as a gradual path, but more as how am I living in this moment? We can do all the meditation practice in the world. We can be with 500 breaths in a row. We can have all the insights. We can have the most profound insights on the retreats. We can have the most profound, far-out experiences. But if it doesn't affect the way we live, if it doesn't affect the way we are in the world, the way we relate to ourselves and to others and to the environment, what use is it? 
the liberating insights, the liberation transforms. And it transforms in a way that the path is laid out. The Eightfold Path is laid out and it becomes, it becomes us and we become it. And this is, this is the real, this is, this is real liberation. Liberation is, is to live the Eightfold Path. To live with wisdom and, and ethics and all the different aspects of, of the meditation the mindfulness, the inquiry, the concentration, the joy, the energy, equanimity, all these qualities that are cultivated, all these qualities that are cultivated through the practice, but also come with wisdom, come with the understanding. And so the so the, the eightfold path is like the, the chariots and the entering the palace. It's a gradual path, but it's also here and now. So real encouragement to to use the path, to follow the path, to 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 really explore these these eight aspects in your daily lives. And this is such a practical way to bring the teachings alive in your life and to bring the practice alive in your life and to bring awakening into your life. So let's sit quietly for a couple of minutes.
all beings be on the path of wisdom, ethics, meditation. May all beings manifest the path. May all beings know true freedom of mind and heart.